Take your copy of the Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 4, please. Again, I'll be reading in the ESV, the English Standard Version. And one of the points that I make probably too frequently, but I'm not really sure you can, uh, is that because we believe that God wrote the Scriptures and that God is infinitely wise, He's outside of time, when He looks into time, it's kind of all there in front of Him. It's past, present, future. He He is. When He wrote His Word... Is that we as humans, we, we exist only in a timeline. And so we think of uh, a letter being written in a point in time and then kind of what it means after that. And that's probably an incorrect way to think of the Scriptures because God exists outside of the timeline. So when he wrote his Scripture, he wrote it with the people who originally read it in mind. But he wrote it with you in mind, which is a wonderful thing to think about so that when we come together to study Isaiah chapter 4 here in just a moment, this is God's Word for you today. He had you in mind when he wrote it because he's outside of time and space and infinitely knowledgeable. Let's hear God's word. Isaiah chapter 4. And seven women <clears throat> shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. And glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning And then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give life and light to our minds? May your spirit be pleased to work for Christ's sake. Amen. I occasionally, in reading the Bible, feel very badly for the people in it. Not always, I guess, but sometimes. Specifically, one of the weird things is reading the Gospels to think about how many times Their most embarrassing experiences are recorded in Scripture forever. A thing that will never pass away. Can you imagine that? Having your greatest failures recorded in Scripture so that everybody for all time, forever and ever, amen, even into when time doesn't exist anymore, the way we think of it, will know of your failures. I I sometimes just chuckle and think those poor disciples, I mean, Praise God they got to sit at the feet of Jesus, and that certainly surpasses the difficulty. But I think about Peter and, you know, betraying the Lord and having that recorded in the Scriptures forever. And so many others. I think one that constantly kind of surprises me is in Acts chapter 1. And I'm actually going to ask that you turn there just real quickly. 
Acts chapter 1 is in one of those places where we love the disciples. They're our, our, our fathers in the faith, our brothers in the faith, but where they kind of miss. And I think this is encouraging because by the point, time we get to the point in Acts, you have men who have sat in the Lord Jesus seminary for multiple years. Uh, they've sat at his feet. They've watched him be, um, you know, killed him, give up his life. They've uh, even witnessed him in the resurrection. These are men that if anybody ever should understand, these are the men that should get it. They've had the entirety of the Old Testament kind of given to them and understood. They've had access to the Lord Jesus, who's even explained the Old Testament to them. And they, they should understand what's going on. So in verse 6, when they ask the question, this is a question that you would think, you, you would hope that they know the answer to. When they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. They're asking really what we're going to get to in Isaiah chapter 4 and where we've been at in part of chapter 2. They ask Jesus the fulfillment question for the passage that we're going to look at today. And I guess in a comforting fashion for us, maybe perhaps one we can have compassion on them for, they get it totally wrong. Right? They, they've understood that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that. They know that he's given up his life for them. They know that he's more powerful than death. They know that death couldn't keep him and he's been raised. But when they go to answer the question about Isaiah 4, Isaiah 2, and so many other chapters in Isaiah, they totally miss. Because they've mistaken something very important. They've connected kind of all of the kingdom prophecies with one specific nation, with one specific kind of geographical entity, with one specific biological people group. They've connected all of those kind of future great and grand promises to Israel. It's a mistake that is all too commonly made. In fact, actually, in uh, our great nation, so many um, dear Christians, dear believers, and occasionally Bible scholars have made that terrible mistake of equating that same thing. Lord, is now the time you're going to establish your kingdom in the United States? To equate his kingdom with one geographic location, to equate his kingdom with one biological people group, to equate his kingdom with one nation or state. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it time? Acts chapter 1, the resurrection's happened. uh, They know he's the Messiah. This would be the time. And interestingly, what's his response? It's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. You don't know when the end's going to come. But, interestingly, he then corrects their theology. Guys, you got the wrong kingdom. You're talking about a geographical kingdom. You're talking about the restoration of Israel. You're talking about a geopolitical entity. That's, you, you got it wrong. The kingdom of God that is at hand that he's been preaching at this point for years in their presence, verse 8, is one that is marked by you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. His kingdom is not a geographical kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. Although he does own the earth, (laughs) and in fact, Romans 13 tells us that he is sovereign over all governments and states, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and it is indeed even already at hand. That's what Jesus himself says. And uh, as important as we go back to Isaiah 4, you can turn back now, to make sure that when we come to this text, we're, we're in the right category. Oh, Lord, is now the time that you will establish your kingdom? Well, he has already. And so when we come to talk about uh, Isaiah chapter 4, there's going to be parts of it, again, kind of already fulfilled in the prophetic sense, and parts that we might see more fully into the future. It starts with a very significant kind of ending of of the previous chapter. Uh, Verse 1 is often pulled into chapter 3 instead of added to chapter 4, one of the weird chapter divisions. Seven women will take hold of one man, and in that day saying, we'll eat our own bread, we'll wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our approach. All right, so chapter 3, if you remember, if you are here last week or paying attention, uh, the Lord has been saying that the sign of his judgment amongst Israel, amongst his people, the sign of his judgment is that their entire culture has imploded. The family unit has imploded, societal norms have imploded, Uh, political structures and functions have imploded. In fact, actually, one of the great kind of judgments he marks against them is they don't have any decent leaders. Nobody's left to run the country, and so they're actively having to go like, hey, dude, you got a coat on. Why don't you be king? Like, you look a little bit nicer than the rest of us. Maybe you're not quite as poor as the rest of us. You shave today. You you come be king. You, You be the boss. In fact, even later in chapter 3, it even goes so far as verse 12 to say that the leaders are infants and women. It's, there are no good men left in the land. Verse 1 of chapter 4 kind of presents that in its just rawest and most awful fashion. A society that has so collapsed, God's judgment upon them so uh, comprehensively that there are no good men. And so instead, what you have are women competing for those men and saying, you know what, even though you're not a good man, I will be my own provider. (laughs) You don't have to, you don't even have to take care of me if you'll just let me have your name so that somebody can pretend to claim me. I know you're not going to watch out for me. I know you're not going to take care of me. In fact, actually, we'll all do this thing together uh, in some sort of sick and weird fashion because society has collapsed. What you have here in verse 1 is a description of the wrath of God. That people have been handed over to their sin, that he's withdrawn his protection from their blessings, and you have a a portrait of the, the destructive nature of sin. Families broken, jobs broken, countries broken, politics broken, the whole entirety of humanity broken. I love that it's kind of within that framework. This is why the disciples are asking that question of, is now the time that you're going to restore your kingdom? Because they're not, they've not turned a blind eye to the reality of the brokenness in the world. I mean, in the time in which they're living, you're dealing with Rome, you're dealing with all sorts of persecutions. I mean, they did just execute Jesus just a couple of days prior. 
I love that it's within the context of a conversation about sin that we get to have a conversation about the Lord's redemption. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of talking about how life is. We don't have to be afraid of talking about our hearts. We don't have to be afraid of talking about the brokenness that exists in the land. Many of you know I've, I've grown up in the South. I've lived here my entire life. Um, in fact, actually, furthest north I lived, I guess, was a couple of months in Kentucky. That's about it. I've lived in a world, a culture, that is so incredibly southern and in some ways so incredibly spiritual but not biblical that we've been taught that you, you have to hide everything always, all the time. You don't show any of your limitations. You don't showcase any of what's going on in your heart. You have to pretend to be the good and righteous person. You have to pretend to at least uh, be polite and to be, you know, uh, well, not tacky. And what that's done in a culture that I've lived in for much of my life is created a very great comfortability with hypocrisy. A comfortability that, that talks about the, the nice things in life, but never actually addresses any of the hurts that make us question what God is doing. We talk about being nice to each other. We, we re, you know, teach our children and rebuke our children when they're not nice to each other, but we never really wrestle with the own darkness of our own hearts. And I love that that's kind of the background of any conversation about God's kingdom, any conversation about God's work is this kind of backdrop of, look, you're a sinner. Our sin is catastrophic. Left to its own ends, we will destroy everything. Our sin is the problem. Our sin can destroy a country. Our sin can destroy a culture. Our sin can destroy a creation. And you know how we know? Because it already has. Just watch the news. But it's in light of that kind of large conversation about the consequences of our sin, a large conversation about the consequences of what we've done, what we're active participants in, that then verse 2 changes the landscape. You have in verses 2 through 6, one of these just lovely, encouraging, beautiful parts of the Scriptures to remind you that God is at work. God is at work. What is God doing in His kingdom? Well, we're going to see very quickly five things, just kind of movements that He's doing in the text. Verse 2, we see kind of as he explains what his kingdom will be like, it's within the context of a nation that's been destroyed. Now, that was prophesied. Judah and Jerusalem indeed do fall kind of partially through the book. They're destroyed as a nation, wiped off, wiped off the face of the map roughly, uh, ultimately until I guess what, the 40s or 50s uh, here recently. It's in contrast to that that God then makes this promise. In that day, the day of the Lord, the day in which God establishes His kingdom. Now again, remembering that day of the Lord, because of the perspective, can refer to a lot of different times kind of all at once. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful 
and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So what's being presented by God uh, in this is very much figurative and spiritual language is saying when he establishes his kingdom, his kingdom will be established by and through his family tree, a family tree that will be marked by a fruitfulness in the land and a transformation of the world around them. Now, ultimately, you know, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but not just in Jesus. It's fulfilled in the establishment of His people in His places. This is where, again, partially the disciples get it wrong. They're asking Jesus that question. Hey, Jesus, you've been raised. You're, uh, you're the resurrected Messiah. Is now the time when you're going to get the sword out and lop the head off of all the Romans? And once they're dead, we then have this new holy kingdom located in Jerusalem. And Jesus' response is significant to them. He says, guys, you're about to receive the Holy Spirit, and my kingdom is going to go with you to the ends of the earth. It's not going to be located in Jerusalem anymore. It's not going to be located in Judea anymore. It's going to go everywhere. It'll make it all the way to the United States of America thousands of years later. It'll make it to the places that you don't even know people exist. My kingdom will be taken everywhere that my people go. Because his kingdom is not ultimately a a geographical kingdom. It's not ultimately a political kingdom. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is executed through the presence of his people. So that when we live in Fort Mill or Tiga Kay or Indian Land or Steel Creek or Rock Hill or Clover or Pineville, wherever else we live in this region, when we go kind of motoring around this area, we take the kingdom of God with us for we are his people. We're part of that holy family tree that he's promised to establish and that holy family tree that then produces fruit everywhere it goes. That's why, in theory, a nation that is filled with Christians, not a, not a Christian nation, those, those don't really exist the same way anymore. A nation run by God, that doesn't really exist the same way anymore. But a nation filled with Christians will be a better place to live, in theory, because you'll have the fruit of all of those Christians living godly lives. The kindness and the mercy they show one another, the faithfulness as a, as a culture and as a nation. You think about how many of us, we still enjoy the benefits of that. Chad and I were talking about this this week. Some of our neighborhoods still in places where you don't have to sign for packages. They just throw your mail out on the front porch and just wait. It'll still be there when you get home. They probably could just open your door and put it inside because your house is probably still unlocked too. The benefits of a culture that's flourished under the, the presence and the, the working of God. It's intriguing. This is a major change from what the disciples are going to mistakenly understand things to be. Again, a, a geographic or political institution to hope in. And instead, Jesus ultimately is going to say, you hope in me and what I'm doing. My kingdom will be a spiritual one that will fill the earth a family tree, this branch that will then grow and flourish and produce fruit all in the land. And who will be in that branch? Well, it will be the survivors, the remnant of Israel, those uh, that know the Lord. Again, not those Jews that are of a biological lineage or even a cultural lineage, but those that know the Lord Christ. 
Well, okay, if it is a spiritual kingdom, if it is something that God is doing, not just geographically, but even to the ends of the earth, that's really happy for us. We can meet here for worship. We don't all need to go hop on a plane and go motoring out to Jerusalem um, yesterday or today. Uh, Instead, we can meet here. But what other benefits come along with this spiritual kingdom? Verse 3, this is fantastic. He, anyone who's left in Zion, the the ones that are remaining in Jerusalem, the ones that haven't been destroyed by the enemies, those that have not been destroyed by God, those that are actually the right and holy people, those that are God's people that are remaining in Zion, those left in Zion remaining in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Now, this is a contrast because if you remember kind of the flow of Isaiah, it started out with this idea that God's building something beautiful, but everything around that his people are just making a hash of it. They're making a mess of it uh, every which way that can be imagined. Rather than being obedient to his commands, rather than living a life of godliness, rather than walking in holiness, every which way the people that pretend to be his... They're not living the lives they're called to live. They're not living in obedience the way that they're called to obey. And interestingly, you have this kind of declarative change in verse 3. This is one of those areas where grammar is important. Words have meaning. Is this a statement that those who are left in the kingdom of God might potentially someday, occasionally, perhaps once or twice, be called holy? Is that how that reads? When Isaiah wrote this, did he put in a footnote? Or worse yet, an endnote. Oh, endnotes. Do we have an asterisk in the text? Is it even in the subjunctive? No, what's happening here? It's a declarative statement. Those of God's people, those that remain, those that know the Lord, will be called holy. Declarative, it's transformational. God's people will be made new. And for some of us, dear friends, this is probably has to be one of the most comforting things about the reality of Christ's kingdom is that holiness is not negotiable. I mean, we struggle with sin now. We struggle with the effects of sin. Some of us have had a really yucky last eight days of talking about this. I mean, how many times, Brandon, have we this week just said, I hate sin. I'm so tired of it. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of y'all's sin. I'm I'm tired of it all together. I'm tired of sin. I'm weary of sin. I hate it. And I love that it's in verse 3, this kind of contrast, this declarative statement that God's people already are made holy in Christ. If you are united with Christ, you are already holy. You've been made new. But, next point, transition quickly. Everyone will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth. Of the daughters of Zion and the bloodstains of Jerusalem. The Lord's in the business, not just of, it's not just declaring us holy. It's not just a statement. Hey, you guys are unique. You're weirdos. You're different than everybody else in creation because you belong to me. But then God follows it up and says, and I'm in the business of cleaning you. 
of caring for you, of transforming you, of making your life match what my commands and declarations have been. If you are a child of God, you will be changed. The only thing you get to decide really is how much fun you have along the way. God always wins. He's always victorious. He always gets his man or woman. He always does. And to be fair, I love this, you have this kind of declarative statement in verse 3 that God makes his people holy. He changes them. It's the the nature of his kingdom. And then in verse 4, it explains that not only does he make that declaration, but that he then follows up on it and, and makes kind of the proof in the pudding. He changes people and transforms them. But if we're going to be honest, again, I love living in the real world. I love living in the truth. Some of us have grown up in a brand of Christianity that said, well, as long as you're walking with Jesus, you're going to have fun. Or sometimes they'll even say, every time you obey the commandments, it's good and easy. Like, ooh, that's a lie. And the first time you actually do that and the life gets worse, it kind of puts you in a little bit of confusion. Like, I thought I was obeying God. Why did it get so bad? Why does my heart, why does my heart hurt so badly if I'm obeying the Lord? Why is my life so hard if I'm obeying God? And I love that verse four actually I think hints at that in some fashion. What's the mechanism that God is using to, to purify the city? What's the mechanism that God is using to kind of clean his nation? Uh, here referenced in verse four. Spirit of judgment. And a spirit of burning. Those are not the things that I tend to like really look forward to. Right? I mean, it would be like, if I had written this, I'm not God, thankfully, it would be much, much worse. But if I had written this, I would have said, well, then the Lord will wash away the filth of his people and he'll cleanse them by a big old hug. Or he'll cleanse them by just dumping all the blessings of heaven upon them. Or uh, he'll cleanse them by making their lives easy. Or he'll cleanse them by changing their hearts so they'll never want to sin again. And interestingly, God being the wise God and the good God and the true God actually explains it much better. (laughs) That part of this kind of cleansing, sanctifying process Well, it's through judgment, and that's actually having hard conversations about our motives. It's having hard conversations about our hearts. It's having hard conversations about our mouths. It's having hard conversations about how we live. But then in the ESV, actually, it's it's an excellent translation, a spirit of burning, the idea of like a, a, a fiery wind blowing through and burning everything out. And this is that kind of great illustration of if you've ever watched a, a big building catch on fire and burn really hot. 
don't know if you remember that there was a couple of years ago, there was a hotel somewhere, I forget, in the Middle East that caught fire like on the fourth floor or something, and it had a wind tunnel that went up through one of the elevators, and the fire was blowing out on the 22nd floor at like a jet engine out the side because it had created kind of this, you know, fiery uh, vortex on the inside, just blowing out a bajillion degrees halfway up this 100-story building or whatever. It's that idea of like this consuming burning fire wind that blows through and consumes the parts that we don't like. Other parts in the scriptures, we have it again with that idea of like burning away the dross from a metal. How do you purify metal? It's terrible, isn't it? How do you purify metal? Do you remember this? You burn it so hot that it turns liquid and then you burn it hotter so that all of the crud lights on fire and burns off so that the only things left is the pure metal that you want. It just put under such intense heat, such intense stress, such intense agony that all of the bad things are burnt away. Some of us in the room, that hits a little close to home right now. Some of us in the room, that, that is, whew, that is an illustration that is just a little too close to it, isn't it? Where we feel like, man, Lord, I, I want to love you and I want to obey you and I want to walk with you. Why does it feel like my, my life is on fire? Why does it feel like everything hurts? Why does it feel like there's no place that the fire hasn't burned yet? And I love that the Lord actually explains what he's doing. That for his people, this is how he cleanses his holy city. As he burns away all the evil. He burns it away. I mean, let's be candid. We kind of understand this intuitively in some way in our our own lives. Very few people are so happy that they're going to make major life-changing decisions. that's, That's traditionally not how we work. Where we're like, you know, I'm so happy. I think I'm going to change everything about my life. That's not traditionally how we work. We make small decisions based on that. We'll say, I'm so happy I want to rearrange the furniture in the house. Some of us, that's us, right? Yeah, that's me. I'm that guy. Like, yeah, let's just move all the furniture around. Why not? It's fun. Let's do this thing. I don't know. But when we make big decisions, it usually comes at the expense of something. I'm so upset about this. Or that heart attack added some perspective. Or... You know what? That huge fight with my boss has made me so miserable. We have some sort of kind of catalyst that makes us so unhappy, so dependent upon God that it, it pushes us into transformation. Friends, the Lord uses the fire. He uses the misery to make us ready. Some of you are visiting with us today, and you don't actually probably have any emotional attachment to this point, but some of us in the room do. This church has been under the fire, really, I think, probably since September 1. I don't know exactly what God is doing, except this. 
I don't understand why he's chosen this season, why he's chosen these months. I don't know. I don't know why he's chosen these years. Honestly, if you really think about it, this church has been really under it for about a year and a half now. But the last five particularly so. And I do love that in this verse 4, there is some sense of a promise that the Lord doesn't waste the fire. He doesn't squander the burning. He doesn't misuse the pain. But instead, for His people, He uses it for our cleansing. He uses it for our good. Well, there's a byproduct, actually. I think verse 5 marks a a very significant transition. Verses 3 and 4 kind of explain how God interacts with uh, His people. Ultimately, the holy city is this kind of, He he burns it to the ground, not to start, start over, but to cleanse it. And those that remain, those that are His people that have not been consumed by His wrath, that have not been consumed by His judgment, those that have remained and have been cleansed by the fire of God, those that have been purified, we know now, by the blood of Jesus and have the Holy Spirit absolutely sanctifying them from the inside out, those that remain from that get verse 5. That the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who has redeemed for himself a people, the Lord will create over that whole location, over the whole site of Mount Zion, this holy city, over the entirety of it, he will create. And this is where our Old Testament Bible knowledge tends to let us down a little bit. And we go, I'm confused. What is he going to create over her assemblies? A cloud by day, a smoke, a shining fire, flame of night. And over all the glory, there will be a canopy. <laughs> He's going to create a weather phenomenon? I mean, cool, I guess. No, what we have here actually is, is a referral back to the Exodus, where you remember when the Lord led His people out of Egypt through the Exodus, He led them by day by a pillar of fire and by night, I mean by a pillar of cloud and by night by a pillar of fire. Now, many of us have watched the old, uh, I guess, what is it, Yule Brenner and such, uh, Ten Commandments, and when we think of that, what do we think of with this little pillar of fire and pillar of cloud? Is this little pencil-thin, you know, pillar of fire and cloud. Because that was all they had available for their special effects. Probably not accurate. Remember, that pillar of fire was designed to provide safety and illumination for a nation of best guests somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million people. So maybe think about it a little bit differently to think about it would be a pillar of fire bright enough for the city of Charlotte to take refuge beneath it. Probably not some little spindly little bit of smoke, huh? Realistically, what is the pillar of smoke probably? Best guess is it's probably the largest, scariest tornado ever observed in human history. So interestingly, what the Lord is saying is like, what's going to happen is the Lord is going to show up in His presence and in His power. 
You remember these as the Lord led them by direction with the tornado by day. So they knew where to go. If God is going that way, I'm following the tornado because that's where my God is. And when he stopped, they stopped. And then he moved around behind them and turned into the pillar of fire so he would protect them so that none of their enemies would dare go near them. And no kidding, if there was a tornado big enough for the city of Charlotte to be see it all and it was made of fire, I'm not going near that under any circumstances. What he's presenting here is his presence, and it's his presence marked by power where he leads them, where he directs them, and where he protects them. All of that in just a weather phenomenon. His guidance, his direction, and his protection. You see, this is the interesting thing, the consequence of the cleansing, the consequence of the holiness that he's worked in his people is his presence. It's his presence. No, I love this. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has never left us or forsaken us. He's not going to. Our Lord has never turned his back on us. We're his people. He's he's not going to. That's all finished in Jesus In fact, actually, when there is a problem in our relationship with the Lord, it's never Him. It's always us. And I think what's being described here in some fashion is the Lord kind of presenting it in in, in story form. The description of Him bringing His people close. Bringing His people by His side. Bringing his people next to him. The city is destroyed in judgment. The city is cleansed with fire. And then the Lord himself descends upon it. And, lastly, for the people of God, this is, I think, intriguing. What are the consequences? If the Lord is present, if the Lord is there, if the Lord is in and among His people, what will the uh, the consequences be? Verse 6, there's a booth for shade by day in the heat. Booth, we probably doesn't translate like, think like patio or pavilion. When they had the the festival of booths, it was like tents. It was, this is more than just like a vendor's booth at the state fair or something. Uh, This is probably more like a covered canopy where you could rest, where there would be food and drink. It would be much more kind of like what we would think of as somewhere probably between like a vacation spot and a restaurant. In his presence, what will there be? There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat. There will be a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. There's protection. We get all of the benefits and blessings of being in his presence. There is protection. I love that. That he makes it abundantly clear for us to know. Honestly, friends, this is so important. Some of us are actually scared to be close to the Lord. I remember this. This was part of my testimony growing up as a kid. I remember uh, as I was learning to walk with God that I I thought, well, I know I'm a Christian. I don't remember days not knowing the Lord. I I know uh, what obedience is like. But there was a certain point in in my growing in, in grace where I was forced to kind of come to that question 
of am I going to be all in on Christianity? Or am I going to try to kind of keep it at arm's kind of reach and it be a little bit of a hobby? I mean, I know the Lord is true. I know the Lord is real. I know he saved me. Is it just going to be kind of a part of my life? Or is my relationship with the Lord going to be all of it? And I'm going to be honest with you. To be completely truthful, I suspect this is true for many of you. I was really scared about that. I was really scared because I thought, you know what? I'm having, I'm having fun <laughs> the way I'm living. And the Lord doesn't know anything about fun. I mean, aside from the fact that he created it. And I laugh a lot. And the Lord doesn't know anything about laughter, again, except for the fact that he created it. And what does God know, really? And that was, I think, about the point where I realized this is a really stupid line of thinking. If God is who he says he is, what am I doing? And I love that even here you have kind of at the end of it this this reminder that if God is who he says he is, he's going to take care of you. He's going to watch out for you. He's going to guard and keep you. And in fact, actually, there are blessings attached to being in his very presence. Well, what do we do with this? Well, very quickly, I'll give a couple of just applications. As mentioned prior, some of us, I think, perhaps feel the fire a bit too um, intensely at the moment. And if you find yourself in that category, I would encourage you. One, it does not last forever. But two, he tells us why he's given it. The purpose of the fire is to bring you close. It's to bring you next to his side and to bring you with him. I suspect the second category, perhaps again for some of us, are those of us that are saying, well, you know, maybe I don't really want to live that way. Maybe I, I know the Bible's true. I know that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. I know he's the, the only hope, the only way, the truth, and the life. But I'm really not eager to be all in. Because if I'm all in, then I have to give up my fun. If I'm all in, then I have to obey the Ten Commandments. If I'm all in, then I have to be super Christian or whatever else. And if you're in that category, friends, the Lord himself is telling you that it's worth it. Because you get him. And not only do you get him, but you get all of his, his blessings and his protection and his help. And then lastly, I would end with this. I don't know what the future holds for this church. I, I joked with Brandon when we were hiring him. I said, Brandon, I can't tell you anything. I can't promise you anything about what Christ Ridge will be. But I can't promise you it'll be exciting. One of those statements that was a bit more prophetic than perhaps even I would have guessed. I don't know what the future holds for this church. The Lord is blessing us in more ways than we can count. And it's not also been insignificant that he's blessed us recently with tears. A lot of them. I don't know what the future holds. But I do know this. It will be far more enjoyable if we're clinging to his side instead of running from him. Now, I, I don't know who's in those categories. Only he knows your heart. But maybe... We can just kind of prep for the exciting because it's been going hard for a number of months now. And we can together run to his side 
so we're ready for whatever the future holds. Because I suspect he's not done yet. Because he loves us, and I happen to know you, and I happen to know my own heart even better, and you're not perfect and neither am I. So until we're made ready, he's going to keep working. So maybe we can spend some energy to stay close to our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the sweet passages and the hard passages. We thank you that you have shown us so much mercy. And again, even as we did in Sunday school, I thank you right now. We thank you for baby noises in the sanctuary. We praise you for those little coughs. They represent answers to so many prayers, and they represent the next generation that we get to pass off the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Would you bless them and would you bless us? For Christ's sake, amen.